As was mentioned, uh, please take your copies of the Bible and open them to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, you could find 1 Peter seven books back from the very end of your Bible. And we're going to read uh, verses 8 through 11 in the last section of the letter. Uh, <clears throat> before we read, as was mentioned, my name is Max. I'm from Emmanuel Baptist Church. And as I've mentioned uh, before in the opportunities that I've had to preach here at Veritas, uh, that it's uh, special for me to be here for two reasons. Uh, the first of which is, uh, as a church there in Midtown, we have a great invested interest uh, in Veritas because you are our brothers and sisters, and uh, we rejoice uh, at the fact that the truth of God's Word is uh, shining brightly here in Roseville, and we praise God for that, uh, and we are even encouraged in our faith as we see your faithfulness from the distance. That's the first reason. The second reason is I've had the chance uh, to preach through First Peter uh, at Emmanuel Baptist Church in the last three years or so, and now I've had the privilege in many ways to uh, take you guys through First Peter as well. I know I haven't preached every sermon, but uh, this was the last sermon I preached from this letter, and uh, maybe because it was the last in its order, I don't know, but it stuck with me on like uh, none others from this letter because it's forced me to think through truths that I haven't thought through before in many ways, and I hope the same will be true this morning for you. So again, let's open our Bibles to First Peter chapter 5, and uh, even though this text was just read, I want you to listen to it again as I read it out loud before we pray uh, in an effort to have the Word of God reverberate in our thoughts and our minds as we unpack this uh, passage of God's Word. So again, First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come before the Lord in prayer, asking him to bless our time and his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning again for your love to us and for giving us your son, that he would die in our place. And so we ask that you would fix our hearts upon Christ and that our boast would be in no one else but him, uh, especially as the opposition of this world surrounds us and uh, the opposition of the devil becomes increasingly burdensome. Father, cause us to look to your Son, and help us to profess Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering and even build our knowledge of the truth through the preaching of your word. Father, I ask specifically that you would help me to be clear and bold in the truth and that you would help all of us to hear and obey that we would entrust our souls to you while doing good for we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Again, many of you know that First Peter 
was a letter written by the Apostle Peter, and he wrote this letter to uh, the Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they were scattered just simply providentially. They lived in different parts of Asia Minor, but also they were forced to move quite often because they faced severe opposition by their neighbors, by those who lived around them. Peter was greatly burdened for them because it's probably true that he was their spiritual father in many ways. It's also, I think, worthwhile for us to remember that this letter is God's word. And that means that it is perfectly and meticulously arranged by God for the purpose of edifying God's people. And as Peter says at the very end of his letter in chapter 5, verse 12, just right after the text that we read in his greetings, that Peter wrote this brief letter to Christians, and he wrote it to exhort them and to declare uh, that what he wrote is the true grace of God, and he's calling Christians to stand firm in it. And you also notice right before our text in verse 7 that Peter tells Christians to cast all of their anxieties on God because God cares for Christians. Christians must cast their anxieties on God. Now, I think you know... uh, you know yourself, I think I know myself as well, that if Peter just ended his letter there and he told us to cast our anxieties on God, then we would just stop. And we would rest. And we would think that God got it from here. Uh, we can just coast on by uh, eating pie in Roseville or wherever we live until we die. Right? Why care if God cares for us and takes care of our every need? Why should we care Why should we strive? Why should we move if God has it all under control? Uh, I think Peter knew, of course, that Christians in his day, and of course Christians in our day, would likely draw that conclusion. And so uh, he finished out his letter by giving us some of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. In our text, Peter calls Christians to think soberly. Uh, He calls Christians to be watchful. And he calls us to this because the devil seeks to devour us. This is Peter's point here. He says, be watchful because the devil seeks to devour you. And that is what I hope to unpack for us this morning. And to help you follow along, I want to give you the three main flows of thought in these verses, in verses 8 through 11. As we look at our text, we will see three big ideas from Peter, three main points. Uh, Peter tells Christians that they must be watchful, as we see in verse 8. And Peter also tells Christians to withstand the devil, as we see in verse 9. And thirdly, Peter calls all Christians to wait for deliverance, as as we'll see in verses 10 and 11. To wait for deliverance. Now, uh, just to warn you, we'll spend the majority of our time in the first point uh, unpacking the idea of being watchful. And we'll spend the majority of our time there because we'll talk about the devil, someone who we feel really uncomfortable talking about and probably don't talk about often enough. So first, Peter, Peter's exhortation for the Christian to be watchful. Look again in verse 8. Peter tells us both what to do and why we must do it. First, what we must do. Uh, Peter gives two imperatives, two calls to action side by side in verse 8. And he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. 
And both of these authoritative commands, they pertain to the Christian's mental state, which is why we'll look at them in order. Peter says, be sober-minded. If you're at all familiar with this letter, you'll know that this is now the third section of this letter that he devotes to the topic of being sober-minded. So important is this state of mind that it's worth asking again. What does it mean for the Christian to be sober-minded? Uh, And Peter doesn't answer that question uh, in our chapter here, but he does back in chapter 4. And I want to ask you to flip back in your Bibles to chapter 4, and we'll try to unpack this definition of what it means to be sober-minded. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, here we again uh, have just a better understanding of what it means. And Peter goes on to say in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. From these two verses, we get a simple definition of what it means to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to think and live according to the will of God. Or to put it negatively, Sober-mindedness is not thinking and not living according to human passions. Does that make sense? Uh, Again, notice the contrast between sober-mindedness and worldly-mindedness as we see in verse 3. Peter goes on to say, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Again, do you notice how stark and undeniable the contrast must be between Christian sober-mindedness and the lifestyle of human passions that characterize those who do not believe in Christ? As Peter says in verse 3, sober-minded Christians who think after the will of God are not to be marked by sensuality, uh, which means having this uncontrollable lust for pleasure. Christians are not to be given over to passions. And the word passions is probably best translated as rioting. You see, in Peter's day, much like in our day, when crowds got riled up, uh, they were moved by a collective passion, and so they rioted. They ran in the streets. They broke and stole things. They justified destruction with this collective passion. And this word for passion is uh, also a likely reference to a popular tradition in, uh, in the Roman Empire during Peter's day, where after feasts and after pagan uh, holidays, half-drunken citizens would parade with torches in the streets in honor of their idol Bacchus, which is the idol of wine, or they would do this also in the name of another deity. And they would vandalize property, get into fights, harass innocent people, molest those who... We're not participating with them. Simply put, it was people who were driven by carrying out every impulse of their passions and lustful thoughts and desires. Now, also from verse 3, we see that sober-minded Christians who think after the will of God are not to indulge in any type of sexual immorality. Again, Peter has in mind any sexual act outside of marriage and any sinful act within marriage. And he says Christians are not to be characterized by participating in anything like this. 
further, sober-minded Christians who think after the will of God are also not to attend drinking parties. Uh, by the way, the drinking parties in Peter's Day are probably not like what we think of, you know. This is nice cheese and nice wine. <laughs> I, you know, this is enjoyable. It wasn't that kind of drinking party, uh, not at all. You know, the drinking parties in Peter's Day would probably cause most of our college campuses to blush. Uh, their drinking parties were called symposiums. It's the word from which we get symposium. And uh, these drinking parties were laced with immorality from start to finish. The very point of getting them together is so that people could outdo one another in perverting themselves. These were grand events where literary works took place, poetry was recited, entertainment was provided, food and strong drink was served. And here's the real kicker. Debauchery was promoted as a form of idol worship. It's nothing different from what goes on today. Nothing different. So passions like sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, they all characterize basically the state of mind and thought where you just do whatever you want to do. Does any of that sound different than what goes on around us today? But Peter says, like Christ, the Christian is to be sober-minded. He must think and live according to the revealed will of God as we see it in his word. And Peter says, commit to renewing your mind, to, to thinking in this way where you think after the word of God. Seek out his will, not the will of your flesh. Seek out his will and think according to it and live and structure your lives according to the will of God. So the Christian, brothers and sisters, must be sober-minded in contrast to the thought process of this world. And notice also in verse 8 that he must also be watchful. Christian must be watchful. And to be watchful means being awake or to be mindful uh, of giving strict attention to detail on a matter. Being watchful means being vigilant and alert. And being watchful, of course, presupposes sober-mindedness. You see, one cannot be alert and in a watchful state of mind uh, that resembles drunkenness. Uh, I know this. I've once tasered myself uh, after I got my wisdom teeth removed, thinking I could coordinate uh, the little taser that I had. And I paid a steep price for, for foolishly thinking that you can be impaired uh, and, and think clearly and alert in a certain matter. And Peter is driving this same point home in a spiritual sense. You see, God urges his people often throughout his word to be watchful. And it's almost always a readiness, uh, excuse me, it's almost always a reference either to being ready for Christ to return or being watchful regarding our morality and how we deal with sin. Okay, that's almost always the reason why we should be watchful. And here Peter gives a more specific reason for why Christians must be sober-minded and watchful. Look again at verse 8. Peter says, Be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter describes the devil as a pacing lion who was looking for prey. 
I think one of the most sobering facts about our lives is that there is a supernatural enemy whose aim is to devour and destroy all of us. And that enemy is the devil. It's the devil. So who is this adversary, the devil, that Peter speaks of? Well, the Bible defines the devil as a created angelic being who fell from his position because of sinful pride and who was now doing everything in his power to oppose God. Since his instigation of evil on earth, the devil has been named as the prince or the god of this earth or the ruler of this world. As Jesus said of him in John chapter 12, verse 31, with the reference to the devil being the ruler over sinful humanity. John calls the devil the accuser. Uh, Matthew and Paul describe him as a tempter. And all over God's word, he is referred to as the deceiver. The devil's very name means adversary. It means one who opposes God. He is a slanderer, he is a liar, and he is thoroughly prideful. Even though he was cast out of heaven, even though he is now on a leash, and he can do no more than God permits, he still seeks to elevate himself above God. Since his instigation of evil on earth that is all that he's concerned with the devil seeks to counterfeit all that he that god does and he's hoping to gain simultaneous worship of this world as well as opposition to god and his people and you know the devil absolutely loves and promotes laziness but he himself is not lazy I believe of all created beings, he is the most diligent, most faithful in carrying out his devices. Of course, we know that those devices are evil, but he is not sitting back. He is acting and moving. The devil's power, again, it is not absolute. He is by no means co-equal with God, where God is some good power and the devil is an equally bad power, not at all. But both in the spiritual realm and on earth, his power is great. And it should not be ignored. And it should not be underestimated or, God forbid, forgotten. In fact, if you forget the power of the devil, he has you right where he wants you. Which is why Peter tells us in our text, be sober-minded, be watchful, wake up and watch and understand that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And he's not just prowling around because he has nothing to do in a zoo. He is seeking to devour. That is his aim. He wants to devour. So be watchful. And now, in relation to the devil... What must the Christian be sober-minded about? Right? We must ask this question. What must we be watchful for? And I just want to point out one primary and overarching ploy of the devil of which we must be watchful and sober-minded. Just one. Again, this isn't all that the devil does or all that we should be concerned about. 
But our primary concern regarding the devil is this, that he is the father of lies. That is our concern. That is his impact, primarily, that he is the father of lies. And you might say, that's it. He prowls around like a roaring lion, and all I have to look out for is some lies? But yes, his lies is where he does his most dangerous work. It's twisting the truth. And if you think lowly of the devil's ability to twist the truth and just how dangerous his lies are, if you think lowly of that, then may God have mercy on you and deliver you into sobriety on this matter. When Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, that they are of their father, the devil, Jesus described the devil as a murderer from the beginning and as one who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's the devil. When he lies, you know, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar. He is the father of lies. And the devil's entire character, his entire aim is towards opposing and contradicting and downplaying and twisting and discrediting the truth of God's word. And sometimes in his opposition of the truth, the devil doesn't just excuse me, pervert the truth, but as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the devil binds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So good is the devil at distorting the light of truth that he is even able to masquerade successfully in costumes of light and righteousness so that those who buy into his uh, lies say that his lies are the truth and they look at the truth and say that the truth is a lie. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, regarding false teachers, that such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he goes on to say, for even Satan, which is another name for the devil, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Brothers and sisters, the devil excels at what he does. He excels at disguising himself. And the devil does his homework. He's a straight-A student in the school of twisting truth. (laughs) He's the founder of that school. And he has legions of demons and those who follow him, who train in his school in twisting the truth. And we must be especially watchful because as Paul goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 15, that the devil even has his servants who also disguise themselves as servants of the truth even though they are of the devil. And they disguise themselves. You see, this spiritual reality plays itself out in the world and often it shows up at your front door. Wearing suits and a tie. But we must be careful because the servants of the devil sometimes sneak into our churches. Sometimes they become members at churches. And that means that we must be watchful. We must be watchful about the books that we read, even books with credible publishers and credible endorsements. 
we must be watchful of what our pastors say. Watchful of what our families and friends say. Not discrediting. Not putting aside. Not losing trust that God uses even people as they handle God's word to edify us and build us up. Not putting these things aside, but we must seek to discern soberly whether or not what we're reading or hearing aligns with God's revealed will in his word. Again, the devil is the father of lies. He has fathered many children. And sometimes those closest to us pick up these little children and they say, look, look how cute. Look how cuddly and soft. Look how harmless. You see, all lies are from the devil. All lies. Even ones that the person who's telling us is promising that it won't harm us. All lies are from the devil. And we must discern this truth and respond accordingly. You know, just a couple of months ago, my six-year-old came up to me and he said, Dad, it says in the Bible that when you die, I get to marry Mommy. (laughs) As a watchful and sober-minded Christian, I said, does it really say that or are you just trying to be funny? And he said, just trying to be funny, Dad. (laughs) So we had a talk about marriage and not joking around about the Word of God. And it was really straightforward. Just a little kid. Trying to feed me the lie of the devil, no less, but just a little kid. Uh, but also a couple of months ago, I was sitting at a coffee shop, and I struck up a conversation with a man who uh, described himself as a gay, professing Christian. And he was adamant to his core that God accepts and promotes homosexuality, that God blesses it, and that Christians must be acceptant of it as a rite of passage into impacting our communities. Just over a cup of coffee, we had this conversation. And the kicker in all of that was that he argued that Christians should be punished by law for their hatred and oppressions of Christians if they did not do this. Both are lies. And as Christians, we must discern the degree to which we respond and how we respond. Right? And we can't explain away, in my circumstance, dealing with my little boy. He bought into a lie, even if he was joking. It wasn't the same measure of a response, but I had to respond because I stand for the truth. And I am called by God to instruct my child in, in truth and do so lovingly and patiently. But... In the same scenario, excuse me, in a similar scenario, right? At a simple sense, a person also bought into a lie, but he was holding it with such a deathly grip. He was so adamant and so firm in it. And you see, in just a brief uh, switch of circumstances, the Christian finds himself in both scenarios, and we must understand that this is part and parcel of our life. We're going to have to deal with the devil's lies, and sometimes they come to us in the form of a joke by someone who we love and someone who we're patient with and instructing, but in another circumstance it could be so firm and even violent and aggressive, and the fact remains we have to respond and stand in the truth. We must be discerning because the devil is real, and this world is filled 
with so many people who have bought into his lines, hook, line, and sinker. Those of us who are in Christ were once enslaved by the devil's lies. And there may be people here right now, friends, if you're visiting, maybe you've been visiting for a while, and you do not know Christ, if you're not a Christian, then God describes you as one who is enslaved to the lies of the devil, even as one who loves those lies, the very lies that enslave you and, and trap you in your sin. Friend, if you're here, Christ does not describe you as someone who is neutral. As someone who is between God and devil trying to figure things out. No, you are described by God as one who is spiritually dead in your sins. You are described as one who follows the course of the... uh, following the course of this world as one who follows the prince of the air, which is a reference to the devil. And over and over, God is warning you that this is serious. This is serious. And so, friend, I urge you to listen to God's gracious warning to you this morning. You are here to hear the truth of God's word. You are here to know that you can be freed from your sin if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. If you turn your trust, not in yourself, not in the lies that you have bought into, but if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, who died on the cross as a substitute for sin, the very sin that characterizes your life. Again, friend, you are called to trust in Christ, for he was raised uh, to life on the third day, and he is the one whose life and every word was true. Because Christ is truth. And he is calling you to look look to him in in humility. He's calling you to repent of your pride, of all of your sin, and to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ, that you might walk in the light, which is another word of saying that you might walk in the truth, uh, a truth that's informed by the Spirit of God and revealed to you. Christ is calling you to know God, and it is the hope of all of us who have come to know Christ that you would turn of your sin and turn to him. And as we return back to our text, brothers and sisters, again, we see that this is non-negotiable. We must be sober-minded. We must be watchful, for the devil is real. The devil prowls around, even now. And he's seeking to destroy. And we must remember that his main weapon is lies and twisting the truth. And that's the first point. Christians must be watchful. And the second point in the sermon, and very connected to the first, is that Peter is urging Christians to withstand the devil. We shouldn't just be watchful, we should also withstand the devil. As we read in verse 9, the command, resist him. This is Peter telling Christians, in reference to the devil, resist him, firm in your faith. But notice also the comfort in the second half of uh, verse 9. Peter goes on to say, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let's look at the command and the comfort in that verse in order. So, far from saying that Christians should fear such a formidable adversary, Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. He doesn't say, oh, understand that there is an adversary and figure out the best way you could run away from him. He says, resist him. 
uh, all over God's word, we're we're, we are called to flee from temptation and flee from that uh, which is unwise for us to be uh, exposed to. But as it relates to the devil, we're not called to flee. The Christian is called to stand firm, to resist him. And it's a spiritual resistance, for in order to resist, we must be firm in our faith. Let's think about this. Uh, if we go back to Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve his truthful and good word in the form of a command to not eat of the fruit of a certain tree. Now, Satan, in that context, was in the form of a serpent, looking for someone to poison he confronted Adam and Eve with a lie, telling them, you will be like God. Again, remember, the devil is not creative. He doesn't have a thousand tricks up his sleeves. He just has one, and he's very good at it. He lied, and he said, you will be like God. And in that moment, Adam and Eve were presented with the opportunity to be sober-minded and watchful in order to stand firm against the devil. But they were not sober-minded. They were not watchful. They were not firm. And that resulted in spiritual death and bondage to sin, enslavement to sin and separation from God, which continues this dynamic between God, the devil, and God's people until the very moment that the Lord returns, this friction and opposition. But you see, in Christ... In Christ, not in our own doing, in Christ we have regained the power to take a firm stance against the prowling lion, despite the consequences, and to show ourselves to be the true and the faithful people of God. And this is the point. Now, in Christ, weak and powerless Christians like us who in our own selves would be torn to billions of shreds by the devil. Now, in Christ, we have the power to stand firm against the devil. This resistance is only possible because Christ himself repulsed the attack of Satan and defeated him. For Jesus said that his casting out of demons showed that he had bound the strong man, which is a reference to the devil, and he could therefore plunder his house, delivering those who were enslaved to the devil and now are slaves of Christ. You see, with the cross in view, Jesus spoke of his triumph over Satan as it's recorded in John chapter 12 when Jesus said in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Brothers and sisters, in Christ we have regained the power to stand firm against the devil. Again, we have to ask and answer, well, how? How do Christians resist the devil? What does that look like? And Peter gives us a short but a very straightforward answer to what that looks like. In verse 9, he says, we stand firm against the devil when we resist the devil by being firm in our faith. By being firm in our faith. You know, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, he provided a very wonderful and elaborate commentary on what it means to stand firm in our faith. Now, don't open to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read it to you, and I just want you to follow along as I read 
Paul's uh, uh, inspired train of thought and try to pick up on the parallels between our text in 1 Peter and what Paul is writing to the Ephesians. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that there are parallels, but look at how, how he adds on commentary in a way to the simple phrase that Peter says regarding standing firm in our faith. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 18, and I deliberately want to ask you to not turn there and just listen as I read. I know you're itching to turn there as faithful Christians, but this is a good exercise as the Word of God is read publicly. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. What is necessary to withstand the devil? What is necessary? Well, the whole armor of God needs to be put on. The whole armor. Right? Christians must fasten the belt of truth. They are to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for their feet. They are to put on the readiness given by the gospel. And in all circumstances, they are to take up the shield of faith for the purpose of extinguishing the flaming darts of the devil. How do, how do we resist the devil? Well, basically, we must be firm in our faith. In other words, we resist the devil when we put on the God-given resources that are given to us graciously by Christ because of our faith in Him. Christ hasn't left us defenseless. He hasn't. He has given us the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the devil. I think oftentimes the issue is we just have a low view of this armor. We have a low view of the power of of God. But in order to resist the devil, right, we don't have to attend some anti-devil boot camp or some special training that we go through at some point in our lives once we become mature enough to finally deal with the serious spiritual attacks of the devil. We don't see that anywhere in God's Word, that only the most mature Christians are called to stand firm against the devil. It's not something extra that Christians should do. It is what we do. The command to resist him firm in our faith signifies that defeat is not inevitable. 
I have lost count how many times people have come up to me and told me, it is impossible for me to fight against this sin. It is impossible. It is, it is scientifically impossible. It is chemically impossible. It is providentially impossible. <laughs> I cannot fight against this sin. But this command signifies that defeat is not inevitable. Christians must resist expecting that the enemy will flee and that God's kingdom will advance. You see what we communicate when we buy into the lie of the devil that we cannot stand firm against him. What we're really saying, as a side note, is that we don't really think that Christ will return and everything that he promised will be set in uh, in motion as uh, everything will culminate in the end. What it really means at the end of the day is that our firm stance in Christ isn't as firm as it should be. Now, again, if you're tempted to ignore the serious nature of what is before us, the need to be watchful and resistant of the devil, I want to illustrate to you just from the life of the very author of the letter that we're looking at, but from uh, way before in his life. Uh, Again, in this case, I also want you to simply to re- uh, listen to the account that is recorded in Matthew 26 uh, from Peter's life to give us an illustration of how quickly things can unravel for those who aren't being watchful and standing firm. Again, simply listen as I read Matthew 26. Now, after being told that Jesus, uh, by Jesus that Peter will fall away from Jesus that night, look at Peter's response. Peter says to Jesus, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I imagine, just to take a break there, if we quizzed Peter and the disciples, if they thought they were firm in their faith, they would say, yeah, listen to my response. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. It seems so spiritual. Words have this way of trickiness in the thinking that if we say them, it's true of who we are. Now look at what happened, or rather listen. We continue in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus, after this response that you know they will not deny him, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and notice. And watch with him. Good timing. Okay, he calls them to watch with, uh, with Jesus. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. This is Jesus saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? I will die for you. Right? That was Peter's words. I will die for you. 
Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Beautiful words. Stay here and pray, Peter. Peter is sleeping. So Jesus says, I read it as a question, but this wasn't a question. Jesus commands him in verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, Jesus went on to continue, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he comes, he came rather, and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Yeah, Jesus, I'll die for you, unless I'm sleepy. I'll obey you and watch with you, unless I want a nap. So, in verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now we're going to skip down uh, past the account where Jesus was betrayed by Judas and then arrested all the way down to verse 69. And we pick back up there. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And most of us know this story well enough, and I think all of us still, whenever we read those words, are screaming inside at Peter. Peter, say you were with Jesus. Say you were with him. But verse 70, we read that he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and and wept bitterly. Now it's a long illustration, but do you think Peter ever forgot this? I don't. I think it was on his mind when he wrote this end to his letter. You may be tempted to think that dangers are small. You may be tempted to think that it's no big deal that if our Christian sober-mindedness is impaired, that the consequence is small when we don't order our lives and our thinking after the will of God. And again, I pray that the Lord would deliver you from such dangerous and reckless thinking. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you know, you and God alone maybe, but you know areas in which you have sinned against God by not being watchful, and you know that you have believed or even lived according to the lie of the devil, then remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus Jesus prayed for Peter, right? He prayed for Peter after that account that his faith may not fail. And if you're in Christ, then he is praying for you as well. And he's calling you. Don't 
Don't use your failure and your sin as an excuse to remain in your sin. No, turn from it. Repent of it and start back up resisting the devil. It is not glorious or honorable in the least to say with false humility, oh, I failed before. This is impossible for me. That excuse is never given to anybody. The only thing that we see over and over in God's word is that when you have fallen, the father graciously says, son, turn from your sin. Turn back to me and follow my son and his perfect example of obedience. So turn from your sin, repent, and start back up resisting the devil. That is the command that we see in verse 9. But we also find a surprising encouragement in the second uh, half of verse 9. Peter says, Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? It's not just a command that we see there, but there is a measure of comfort. And you may say, well, <laughs> well that's not encouraging at all. Uh, not only are you telling me that I have this overqualified spiritual enemy who's, uh, who's tracking my downfall, and I also have this life that is marked by suffering, but you're also telling me that there is nowhere in this world where I could go to escape this suffering. But what initially, I think, seems discouraging becomes encouraging the moment we realize that all of the circumstances that all Christians all over this world find themselves in, those circumstances are not unusual, but in fact, they are to be expected by Christians everywhere. And I know it's not to the same degree, but brothers and sisters, can you believe how consistent the experience of Christians has been all over this world, all over the course of the history of the church? There's been one common theme of unity in Christ and a second common theme of opposition of this world. And yes, it's to varying and different degrees, and there are brothers and sisters in our city, probably our state and country, and definitely around this world who are experiencing opposition in different ways. But opposition is experienced by all. The same kinds of sufferings are experienced by all. And there are four, just four brief encouragements I want to note, or maybe four advantages to be gained from knowing that our brothers and sisters throughout this world are going through the same circumstances as us. And there's encouragement in knowing that we are not isolated and suffering in some unique way. I don't know, maybe for those of you who have lived long enough, uh, you have noticed this pattern of isolation and loneliness when you're going through something by yourself. Uh, there's something about unique experiences where no one else can relate to you that, that isolates you, that, that makes you close up and not be able to relate to others because it seems disingenuous or dishonest when they say, oh, I know what you're going through. But this isn't so for the Christian in the sense of the opposition. First of all, the attack from the devil and the opposition from this world and all of the various trials that result from it. And there is an advantage to knowing that we are not unique in this. I think it's, it's very helpful. It helps us to not be bottled up and, and enclosed and if you're going through something that you think is unique to your circumstances, I want to I uh, encourage you to fight back against the temptation to isolate yourself, but to seek out those who have gone through a similar circumstance for the purpose of encouragement. Or maybe you know through this process of seeking someone out, you'll find someone who's going through something similar as you have either gone through or are going through. And that is an opportunity from the Lord for you to minister to their need 
to come alongside them and, and explain to them in a very uh, personalized way how to remain faithful in the midst of a unique circumstance or what appears to be a unique circumstance. Anyway, but to zone back, it is helpful for us to understand and there is even an advantage to be gained from knowing that Christians all over this world are going through these kinds of sufferings. The second advantage is that we are reminded in the midst of our suffering of the bond that unites us to Jesus Christ and of the reality that in Christ we are united in the family of God throughout the world. So it's important to know this, not just because there is, uh, uh, you know, we can find encouragement from others, but as we suffer, it is encouraging to know that we're part of a family that's suffering. Right? We're part of a family that's being opposed by this world, and it, and it fuels our, our understanding that it is much bigger than us, God's purpose. It's bigger than Veritas, it's bigger than Emmanuel Baptist Church. Is bigger than some strand of Christianity. No, we're part of all of God's people. Uh, not, and not just as a side note, not even all of God's people who are alive now, but everything that the Lord has done in his church. And so that's the second advantage, that we realize that we're part of God's family. Now, the third advantage of knowing that our brothers and sisters are going through the same kinds of suffering is the reminder that suffering is inherent to the Christian faith. It's inherent if you're here tonight, excuse me, this morning, because someone promised you that coming to Christ would make things very easy, and you'd be very rich and very healthy and very liked, you should follow up with that liar <laughs> and ask them why they said that, uh, because we don't see any of that in the life of Christ or any of those promises by God in the here and now. now there are riches and, and hope and even uh, a longing for health and sinlessness and no tears when the Lord returns, but in the life of here and now, our lives will greatly mirror the life of Christ. That same Christ who had no place to lay his head. That same Christ who was opposed by his friends and family and his hometown and the people that he came to minister to. That same Christ who trusted in his Father, calmly trusting his will and plan when he was crucified on the cross. May God spare us from the foolish thought of thinking our lives will be better than the life of Christ in its patterns. It probably won't be to the same degree, although there's people in the history of the church who have suffered great amounts. But suffering as a characteristic or a dominant trait that will be present between your health, between your remaining sin, between the opposition of your friends and family, between the opposition of this world, and between the devil, it will be endless. It'll seem like it'll over, it's overcoming you to the degree that you're trying to withstand a great army and yet in the midst of all of these things we know right we have great promises uh, but again the advantage of knowing this is helpful because we're not caught off guard when suffering comes into our midst we're not caught off guard when we're, when we're ministering to someone who's going through a great trial we don't have to give excuses for God as if God somehow forgot or is asleep or isn't looking uh, you know to take care of one of his own no we were never put into that disadvantage of not knowing how to answer for why circumstances uh, result in pain and suffering. 
And so there's an advantage to be known that our brothers and sisters throughout this world, brothers and sisters who are trusting in Christ, are going through the same kinds of sufferings as us. Because suffering is, is, is a part of God's plan. And we are reminded that we do not suffer in vain and that God has designed the victorious conclusion even in the midst of all this suffering. And the fourth advantage to knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced throughout the world is that the spread of persecution and all of the trials that come with it, they point to the nearness of the return of Christ. And that is an advantage, brothers and sisters. I think we should be alarmed if everything around us is calm and peaceful. Something is very wrong if the devil and his followers are okay with us and our stance in Christ. And so even this opposition from the devil is to fuel our understanding that Christ is returning soon. And that is a glorious advantage because suffering and trials have a way of acutely pointing out to us our weakness and our dependence upon Christ, and it fuels our hope for the return of Christ. Again, Peter mentions to us in verse 9 that Christians are going through the same kinds of sufferings throughout the world, and there are at least four advantages that I could think of that, that result in the life of the Christian that actually serve to benefit us and grow us. That yes, in the midst of suffering, uh, though it is hard to be watchful, and though it is hard to withstand the devil, but we have proof all around us of faithful Christians who are doing the very thing that Christ calls us to, and there's advantage to be had in that. And now the third thing that I want you to see in this text, and this is uh, by way of closing, uh, I want us to notice in verses uh, 10 and 11 that we are called to wait for deliverance. Look again what Peter goes on to say in verse 10. He says, now, after you, <laughs> after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. You know, all of the suffering in the life of the Christian would be futile if it wasn't for these verses, if it wasn't for verse 10 and 11. But at the end of the day, our hope is not to be rooted in our resistance or the mere end of suffering. The hope that will sustain the church in the fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. Peter describes God as the God of all grace, and that is meant to remind us that there is no source, no other source of mercy or grace in our life. And this is because our all-gracious God has called us into his eternal glory in Christ. Brothers and sisters, in closing, we must not gloss over this fact. This is not some throwaway phrase. This is the most wonderful reality for the Christian. In Christ, the manifold excellence of God's character is given and is expressed spectacularly for us. The glory of God, which normally, under normal circumstances, is a reason for us to shudder, fall on our face, and, and, and scream, holy, holy, holy. In Christ... God has decided that we should not remain distant, but that we should be summoned into the very midst of His own glory. Yes, even that we should come in Christ, into that glory, because of our union by faith in Christ, and share in that glory, both now and fully, 
when the glory of Christ will be, will be revealed when he returns. Peter says that in Christ we have the promise of abundant grace that is sufficient to overcome any suffering in this life. So let me ask you, Christian, are you tired this morning? Is your mind weary? Is your sober-mindedness altered or weakened? Are your, are your spiritual eyes bloodshot from being watchful constantly? Has your resolve to resist the devil gone lazy? Or if not lazy, have your knees buckled to such a degree that, that you don't know how much more you could remain firm? Do you find yourself struggling week end to week end, waiting for the first day of the week, the Lord's day, where you could just crawl into a seat here and be encouraged and upheld and edified by your brothers and sisters as they sing the truth of God's word and as you hear the word of God read, as you are joining your pastors as they lead you in prayer, as you hear the word of God preached to you? Do you, do you find yourself just, just barely crawling to the throne of grace. If you do, then this promise is for you. In Christ, we have the promise of abundant grace to overcome any suffering in this life. In Christ, we have that promise. And the point that Peter has made over and over in this letter is that us being called into the glory of Christ will ultimately be an eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, it is not about here and now. There is a future eternal glory that, that, that we are to look forward to, that all of the suffering in our life is pointing us to. Again, Peter doesn't give us fake promises. He never says that we won't suffer. And he doesn't even say that our suffering can be ignored or that it's somehow trivial or not painful. When he said, but for a little while, that is by comparison to eternity. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, though, it is but a little while. But a little while. And to flame our hope and our endurance in this little while, Peter uses four synonymous verbs uh, in verse 10, he's, he, in verse 10, he's describing uh, what will happen by God, what God himself will do to the Christian uh, in the end days. Peter says in verse 10, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we're just going to run through these as we, uh, as we close in prayer. We're going to look through these just for one final time before our time of worship ends this morning to be reminded what we have to look forward to in the restoration that we will have in Christ by the power of God. For the purpose of encouragement, Peter says that God, him, uh, God will himself restore us. The word restore has a, an idea of mending something that is broken. Uh, it has the idea of preserving the worth of something or repairing, but most importantly, uh, it has the sense of perfecting something. Remember, a world where Christians suffer simply because they're following God is not a world as God created it. In the time and place of eternal glory, there will be no suffering, for God will put things right, eliminating the source of suffering and make those who look to Christ perfect. That's one thing to look forward to. 
The next thing Peter says, God will himself confirm you in the sense of causing you to be more firm. Or it has a sense of being set in place and and being unchanging in your attitude or belief. Can you imagine how glorious it will be in glory when we will no longer have to doubt? Certainly, when Christ is revealed and faith becomes sight, the Christian's belief in the gospel will reach its full certainty. And in the meanwhile, God's grace enables believers to remain firm and unchanging by His Spirit. Thirdly, we are told that God Himself will strengthen us in any society where people get away with hurting Christians, harming them, and not paying a price for it. In any society where that is true, that puts the Christian in a place of weakness. But the time will come when Christ is revealed as the true Lord of the earth and the believer's faith in him will be vindicated. And at that time, Christians will be, uh, will, will be empowered by Christ and they will be powerless no longer. They will no longer op- uh, uh, operate from the position of weakness, much like Christ op- operated when he was here on earth. And finally, Peter tells us that God will establish us. And again, this is a reference to stability and foundation Peter is tying together the image of what he talked about in chapter 2, that, that Christians are being built upon the cornerstone into a spiritual home. And what, God, uh, what Peter is revealing here through the words, what God is revealing here through the words of Peter is that one day that a time will come when this spiritual house that is built on Christ will be firmly held and stable and secure, and no one will have to fear that it will be opposed or penetrated or that this home will be broken down. In eternity, we have every reason to look forward to stability and establishment in Christ. So dear brothers and sisters, though we fear, excuse me, though we face unjust circumstances, though we we face realities that put us in moments of weakness and pain and loss, you know, despite what it may look like to anyone around us, this pain and sacrifice and weakness that is part and parcel In the life of the Christian, God's Spirit indeed strengthens, empowers, and secures all who look to Christ. It is happening now, and it will be perfected and fully realized in eternity. That's perspective. Eternity gives us perspective. And glory be to God that in the midst of our trials and our suffering, And this great opposition, we are not those who are hopeless. Glory be to God. Which is why Peter says in verse 11, To God be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask because we are needy. And we ask that you would impress upon us the urgency and the truth of your word. We need to understand this better because we confess, Father, we we go through seasons of drought and watchlessness and we choose to nap and rest when we should be watchful and alert. So, Father, help us by your spirit to look to your Son who suffered in the flesh and accomplished our redemption and help us to learn from him how to no longer live for human passions but for the will of God.
Help us to be sober-minded. Help us to be watchful of the devil. Help us to resist him. Father, stabilize our faith. And let us never forget that you have called us into the eternal glory in Christ. And that one day you will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.